Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good signing to all of our listeners once again. Happy August, August of 2021. It is uh, currently August 16th of 2021 uh, as of the date of recording, although you may be listening to this uh, podcast at a different time. Welcome, of course, to the State of Distressed Debt Fic Focus podcast. Uh, I am joined by, of course, Nagisa Baluku and Phil Brendel, and I am, of course, your host, Noel Hebert. And, hey, a little bit more and a little bit less to talk about both at the same time in terms of what's happening in the overall state of distress and stress. Uh, maybe we start with a little bit more and fill uh, finally a little bit of an uptick in terms of the supply of distressed debt uh, after a little bit of underperformance for uh, credit markets last month. So what are we looking for? I mean, it seems like we're in a little bit of a gauntlet here uh, for returns overall. Yeah, it was pretty exciting for the distressed market. I think the issuers moved up from like 34 issuers to 45 issuers that, uh, or actually just 45 tranches of debt that are actually classified as distressed. Uh, that, that was a half point, uh, in the percentage of, uh, debt that is actually distressed in the, that Bank of America Merrill Lynch high yield, uh, index. So now it's 2.2%. Um, you know, we're in this stretch from June to November where each of those months average negative returns. And July finally played to form this uh, winning streak that the distressed index was on uh, of eight months finally came to an end. July, it was down to 3.4%. And, um, you know, we're still facing the three worst months are right. We're in the midst of one and the others are September and October. So each of those months average more than uh, 1% down and September being the worst of them. All right. So we're going to be, you know, sticking with it for a little while. And certainly the early part, or at least the first half of August here is sort of pointed still in that direction in terms of performance challenges. Are there any, you know, specific risks? I mean, I mean, we got oil off a little bit. You got sort of the renewal of some of the concerns around broader economic growth because of whether it's the Delta variant on the one hand uh, or more recently sort of geopolitical concerns, whether it's the stuff going on in Afghanistan or with China, et cetera. Is there something, you know, that you're looking for here that sort of affirms your view or makes you feel more or less comfortable with the way things are heading? Well, we've been the government handout nation. And, uh, you know, I, I, I question whether, like, you know, the, we know that that's wreaking havoc on the on the deficit. And the question, you know, will, will can this continue if Delta is, uh, you know, as bad as, you know, you, you, I don't know if you noticed, but the University of uh, Michigan consumer confidence number, that was down 10 points from expectations and last month. So, you know, stuff like that certainly is is a little bit ominous. Um, and so, you, I, you know, you take a look around the world, you've got the Delta variant. Uh, we know from our colleagues that emerging market economies really aren't doing all that well. So there is sort of a um, depressing outlook, you know, and, and on the other hand, you see rising prices as well. So it, it just... It, the, the, you can understand why confidence is undermined here. Um, 
as far as earnings for some of these distressed companies, like, I, you know, I, I follow Revlon. They did great, um, you know, and that was mostly the economy opening. But it's really going forward. Um, this is putting a big kibosh on on things. Uh, you know, American Airlines, they, they were they were hopeful. But, you know, clearly you probably had a, a fair number of cancellations for late August. And, you know, things are probably looking a little bit uh, questionable going forward. So well, they that, had a number of self-inflicted wounds too, right? I mean, I've been seeing just about every weekend over the last, you know, several weeks. It seems like that they're struggling with crew staffing issues, et cetera. They're having to cancel a number of flights. Never mind owing to COVID or weather-related issues. It's just a function of getting crews to the airport to actually run a flight. Right. They 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 put to they they made some commitments to the government that they were going to keep people around but they did make it pretty attractive to leave for the people who were knocking on retirement door uh so that's that growing getting gaining those people back is probably a little bit painful and growing pains um but it, it, so so you know i expect to see an uptick here for distressed in terms of supply um where and performance probably you know, going lower. Um, but, you know, will this just be a correction? And, you know, given all the money and liquidity, you know, that's out there, um, that that's certainly possible. And, you know, when I take a look at my technical uh, signal that signaled last June that, you know, credit was probably rallying and I didn't believe it and then it was right and I was wrong, um, you know, the what 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 that also says is that on average, these uh, credit cycles run 31 months and we're only 13 months in. So could this just be a correction and maybe we get more government stimulus since that seems readily available? Um, and then possibly, you know, we make even further lows in distress supply. It's 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 conceivable. Um, so, you know, as usual, it's 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 a little tough to figure out, but certainly I don't necessarily like the outlook for the next couple of months. Yeah, I mean it should be pretty interesting, right? Obviously, because you get Congress that's basically not going to be doing anything at least until the early part of September. Whether it's you know with the five hundred fifty billion infrastructure package or the much larger three and a half trillion dollar whatever they call it, human infrastructure package or however they're phrasing that one, so. I mean, we'll definitely sort of be, I think, sort of in a no-man's land for the next few weeks. And I think similar uh, to the point that you make about distress, I mean, even like higher up the spectrum where you're talking single Bs or triple Cs, you know, you have two sort of paradigms in the sense of when you kind of rally as aggressively as we've done since last year, you do have these intermittent corrections, which are generally about 30% off the lows, plus or minus, uh, and then it's kind of split between does that mean that you're then going to rally to newer lows or are you going to sort of rally quickly and then sort of reverse back to even higher spread levels? So, you know, it's hard to know exactly what way we're going to go because a lot of that is really kind of dependent on obviously how the economy opens up or not. Uh, and then obviously what the government does or not. Uh, so I, I certainly hear what you're saying there, but some continued uh, sort of correction here certainly doesn't look outside of the realm of possibility. Um, now, obviously, the calendar's been a little light just because of all that liquidity that you mentioned, but we do have some sort of things still churning through the cases. Maybe we start with the quick ones, Nagisa, uh, in terms of, I think we've got some mediation efforts going on in, in some of the 
Latin American airline names and that sort of thing. So what's what's the latest there? Sure. Uh, so both Latam and Aeromexico uh, are pursuing mediation currently. Both airlines are moving through bankruptcy through sort of very similar timelines at this point. They both manage to extend their exclusivity, so their right to file the plan. Um, and both plans are due in September. Uh, with respect to Aeromexico, uh, in June, the company sort of shifted its focus towards uh, securing exit financing. And at issue here was the $1 billion um, dip loan that was from an Apollo-led group. And a feature of the dip has always been this ability for the lenders to convert it into equity of the reorganized company at plan value. Uh, there was a question, there's clearly a question as to what the plan value is, and the company pursued a marketing process to for exit financing to decide that. Um, it's We're sort of in the dark as to exactly what the numbers are and what the offers are, but we know that there was a not, at least there was a non-binding proposal in June, and then at the end, but at the end of the Ju- of July, the court put a standstill on uh, the exit financing search and ordered parties to mediation. And a key question that's being discussed in mediation seems to be uh, the valuation issues of the company. Uh, some of it are procedural. It has to do with what materials uh, the lenders need to be given uh, for valuation pro- for the valuation uh, assessment under the DIP documents. And some of it seems to be broader, sort of generally going to the uh, exit financing topic in general. Um, and then... Uh, once there's a proposal that purports to pay these dip lenders, uh, then it will be up to them to decide whether or not they want to convert and at what price they want to convert or or uh, get cash or get cashed out. So um, again, this mediation is probably will continue through August, but um, but it's sort of we're in the dark as exactly what's going on as, as it's often the case. And then Aeromexico has also been dealing for months now with a dispute related to the loyalty, pro, loyalty programs with PLM Premier. And that dispute has been continuously postponed. It's sort of a key bankruptcy question as to who has the authority to seek approval of bankruptcy settlements because there appear to have been some settlements with PLM Premier that Aeromexico never sought approval from the court. Um, this is the type of issue that always usually falls on the debtor um, unless there's extraordinary circumstances which they may not be here. So uh, I view this as settlement seems very likely here. It's just a matter of when and given that the plan is maybe weeks away at this point, um, we'll probably see some resolution to that. Is there uh, any added urgency? I mean, again, maybe cycling back to some of the COVID stuff, and, and obviously it's starting to alter plans and, and sort of expectations for how quickly things get back to where they're going. Uh, and obviously, as, as with all of COVID, right, it's kind of country by country, state by state, region by region. Uh, in terms of how they're dealing with it, do, do you think it adds any urgency in terms of to the participants in the cases to sort of come to a resolution so they can get to a point of uncertain or certainty as opposed to sort of, you know, risking falling deeper into uncertainty? So the issues in this case among creditors have sort of been constant and hasn't haven't changed a lot. 
but the key with both Latam and Aeromexico has been the dip issue. Uh, the dips have been very expensive and very large in both cases, and uh, and 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 at least in the case of Latam, they were very litigated and uh, just lengthy trials. And sort of knowing what to do with with a dip, and knowing whether um, there's available exit financing out there, I think has sort of been the most pressing issue in these cases uh, that has um, sort of affected everything else in a way. Uh, there's a lot of other issues, obviously, but they have not been litigious at all, not even nearly as litigious. So those issues seem to be quite right for mediation and I don't it doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite to sort of bring those to the court and judges are not getting very involved but the dip issues and sort of trying to figure out what to do and some of these dip terms were, were quite novel uh, in terms of equity conversion and such so uh, that has been the most pressing issue in this case is sort of trying to figure out where the marketing process would lead. Interesting. And then maybe uh, we, we pivot away from that as, you know, it sounds like, you know, over the next few weeks, we get a little bit more color on each of those situations. Maybe we pivot to, uh, I guess, one of the few names that's sort of like active and with stuff going on uh, at present. And, and that's uh, obviously brings both of you into play here with Washington Prime. Uh, we talked a little bit about it in the last podcast. Uh, what's happened since? What are we looking for now? Uh, you know, what is the state? I mean, you know, again, I guess everything gets thrown up in the air. This is another one where, you know, obviously you've got retail exposures, et cetera, uh, and, you know, more uncertainty into that space. Is that, you know, where are we with this case, and is that also exposed? So in July, uh, there was a newly formed equity committee in Washington Prime, which was different and funding by the estate as opposed to the preferred equity holders committee, which had been present in the case from the beginning and 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 had uh, had quite a bit of input in the issues that had come up and uh, so whenever something like that happens, obviously the question also always comes up: so what influence will they have? Um, and uh, just merely days after its formation, the committee tried to postpone uh, the confirmation hearing as well as another additional hearing that was supposed to take place if the marketing process, uh, if the sale process sort of resulted in any, uh, in any uh, qualified offers. Uh, they didn't manage to get much of an extension, but they did get an extension nevertheless. So they managed to push the confirmation hearing out uh, to the end of August, as opposed to the middle, I believe. Um, and that would give committee and equity holders more time to sort of uh, just prepare for a dispute, assess valuation and such. And we also it also gave the court an opportunity, I think, to sort of express its views, limited views at the time, as to where it thought the case would go. And the court sort of uh, it made it clear that, you know, the committee is important and it needs time and resources to sort of come up with, uh, with its uh, argument, but also... The court also noted that it does, in fact, favor a market test versus a potentially a hypothetical test that will be presented by experts in confirmation when it comes to valuation. Um, and that's really important to know because just August 5th, the beginning of this month, uh, 
uh, Washington Prime did come out and say that the sale process that they had been conduct conducting to go in parallel with the acquisition transaction they had proposed at the beginning actually did not come up, uh, did not produce any qualified bids. So that's um, so that's and it's not surprising the way it was structured, uh, but that so that sort of all the focus now seems to be on this August 30 confirmation trial. Um, and we'll sort of get a chance to see what valuation disputes may come up there um, and how uh, involved the equity committee would be. Uh, I don't know, Phil, if you had any further thoughts on that. No, I, I, I mean, I, I guess I thought it was really interesting that for all the people talking about, oh, you know, they're getting this company at a song and, you know, and that, you know, that it's worth so much more because you heard that from the preferreds and, you you know, the equity obviously is going to be uh, uh, saying the same thing. Um, nobody showed up. And, uh, you know, it, and granted the way it was structured that you had to show up with $2.4 billion of cash and take out all of the claims was pretty, uh, you know, it's a, it's a rough ass, but we saw it in Hertz. And, you know, you could structure the capital structure as you see fit in, you know, whatever acquisition vehicle you were going to, like, put forth. So if, if the values were really uh, so much greater, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that you're seeing here is that strategic value partners created a nice moat for their bid to be beat because by owning over two thirds of the bonds um, and cutting deals with, you know, the other folks who own, uh, you know, call it four or five percent of the bonds the, the ad hoc preferred shareholders own some the ad hoc secured lender group, you know, which is higher, you know, higher ranking debt. They own some bonds. But the bottom line is, is that by owning all those bonds and, you know, basically the bonds got a 30 cent recovery, you had to pay that in order to top this the, the SVP bid, you had to pay those bonds uh, 100 cents on the dollar. And so that was a long way to go. And, um, you know, SVP's coming here with a big check. And, you know, one of the things that I take away that was a negative was Isger pretty much said a market test is going to be more influential to him than um, than a uh, than, you know, competing investment bankers, you know, arguing valuation. So while I fully expect the equity committee to put on a good fight, um, you know, I I think not having an actual auction and someone showing up, you know, with check in hand really, really hurts uh, the equity committee here. Right. And their and their sort of dispute has been a lot has been much more sort of directed towards the timing of the auction and sort of extending it as opposed to the structure for now. So and if the court did everything it could with respect to the extension and timing, it's not a there may not be a ton more to argue respect to the overall structure of it. So maybe that's where we kind of touch on something and piggyback off of a comment that Phil made because he referenced sort of Hertz and sort of talking through Washington Prime. And that was obviously a topic of uh, your recent and, and quite excellent uh, webinar on uh, make holes and post-petition interest uh, that you had done, I guess, earlier this month. Uh, maybe kind of talk through what's going on with Hertz and, and then I guess maybe for uh, listeners that are interested in uh, and, and some of the four arcane aspects of post-petition interest, uh, the webinar can be found on BI space DIST, which is the home of the distressed content. Uh, but 
maybe uh, tap into a little bit on, on the Hertz stuff and, and if it makes uh, sense, maybe give a quick recap in terms of some of the things that were discussed uh, in the webinar. Sure. So I'll, I'll start, Phil. Um, so we held the webinar on August 10th with respect to make whole and post-petition interest payments in bankruptcy. Uh, and we had invited Renee Daly of Aking Gum, who has been representing note holders in the ultra petroleum bankruptcy in case uh, for a long time now. Uh, uh, so Renee focused a lot on ultra going both sort of historically through the many reiterations and versions of the case going back and forth from the uh, bankruptcy court, district court, the Fifth Circuit, then back to bankruptcy court, and then now waiting for the Fifth Circuit resolution. Um, she gets into sort of very specifics of all the opinions and, and looking forward and also gives an overview of the whole of sort of the legal standards for make whole and post-petition interest. Uh, and then Phil and I focused on hers, which is the most recent and current case touching on these issues. Um, Hertz note holders uh, arguing for uh, make all premiums and post-petition interest in the contract rate in a lawsuit that was filed just the day on July 1st, I believe, the day after the company exited bankruptcy. Um, there was a motion to dismiss filed at the beginning of this month for the case. So that's an ongoing dispute. And uh, uh, Ultra being a Fifth Circuit case does not have a ton of direct impact on Hertz. So in discussing Hertz, we focused a lot on uh, particularly Third Circuit precedent, uh, EFH, um, and also comparing and contrasting that to the Second Circuit precedent in Momentum. And we looked very closely and analyze the contractual language and the Hertz documents, seeing how it compared to language that we found both in cases like EFH, Momentive, and AMR, um, and also looking generally at the circumstance of the case, how the courts in EFH made the decision, and uh, giving some views as to um, where things may go moving forward is definitely not a clear-cut case by any measure. Um, and also towards the end of the webinar, we also discuss sort of um, tips and tricks and how people, the, a, a lot of these issues are very much related to the contractual language of the documents that we sort of we talked about, uh, how we can make that language better and what to focus on and all the drafting issues that may arise. Yeah, no, and uh, you know, I, I just, it, I think if you're curious about make whole premiums or post petition interest, and you know the, the different arguments for how you might actually be able to maximize your recovery, that this webinar was like right on point, and it's like with all the active cases that are, you know, we're seeing recent decisions and and uh, recent arguments. So, um, you know, I, if anyone yeah, is interested, you know please reach out to myself or Nagisa or just uh, look us up on the Bloomberg terminal under B-I-D-I-S-T, DIST. There's a ton of recent stuff. I mean, I, I didn't mention, but also PG&E, there was a May opinion that just came out of post-petition interest, for example. So we talk about that as well. So Yeah, no, and uh, very interesting stuff. And as I told both of you, I mean, uh, I almost followed all of it. So, you know, I felt in pretty good shape there. But, um, 
very, very complex and very detailed. So all excellent stuff. So uh, maybe uh, just sort of last thoughts. And I guess, Phil, you know, one of the things I guess I'm interested from you as always is, you know, we talk a little bit about sort of what's already there sort of in the state of distress. And so, uh, but it's always good to sort of look ahead as well and get a sense of sort of, you know, what's sort of on the cusp. I know you've done some work on Diamond. Uh, what else, or, or maybe even with Diamond, sort of like, what's the situation there? I think you're writing to maybe Sinclair having an opportunity to, to pursue some sort of exchange or something there. Like, what's uh, what else is going on in your universe that's of interest right now? Yeah, so Di- Diamond's been a big focus for recently uh, because uh, so, so Sinclair's got – the television business, the broadcast television group where they have all the local television stations and, you know, they collect carriage distribution uh, revenue from that. But then they also have these regional sports networks where they have uh, rights to broadcast the games uh, for certain for certain games with 45 different fra- uh, franchises, as well as, you know, 15 to 20 stations that, uh, you know, We'll have a typically an NHL team, a NBA team, and a baseball team. Um, and so, what's what was fascinating was you have these two separate credit silos: the broadcast television and the you know regional sports networks. And yet, Sinclair is there at the top of them, and they were renegotiating, looking to renew a carriage agreement with. Um, with a dish network, which, you know, covers about 11 million subscribers. And they, on the day that Charlie Ergen was having his dish uh, earnings call, um, they came out with a press release in the morning saying, Hey, prepare yourselves, uh, dish customers. You're going to be losing access over your dish network um, to these television stations. These uh, is what is over a hundred, um, television stations. So all these local, so that's the, what's interesting is that's the television side. Um, you know, that credit silo and they're running it. And apparently the rates were significantly higher. They, they said basically a billion dollars, which was much higher than it was before. And so maybe effectively what you probably had here was Sinclair was negotiating and trying to get the regional sports networks back on. And, um, it does not seem to be working, but today is it's it's still not uh, you know positive. I guess anything's possible, and certainly with uh, Charlie Ergen, a former professional uh, poker player, I'm you know I'm I'm sure we could see uh, something at the last minute. But um, but in short, he basically said on the conference call that most of the customers who are dish customers these days, they're not interested in RSNs. The ones that were interested, they're, they, they've left and moved on. And, you know, for Sinclair and their RSN network, um, some of the contracts with the distributors, they have most favored nation uh, clauses. So if they're going to cut the price for uh, Charlie Ergen and Dish, then that would require cutting the prices possibly with you know, you can imagine the customers who had most favored nation probably were their biggest customers, and that's the likes of Comcast, Charter, and uh, AT&T, which, you know, all are even bigger than Dish. So anyway, what's getting interesting is, um, you know, we know that they're focused on this exchange offer. We know that they're working with creditors. Um, this is a data point 
it doesn't look like there's going to be a, 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 a new deal with DISH for the RSNs. And so I think that will probably, and the bonds are making lows. So um, you're probably going to see a very attractive exchange offer to the company, to Sinclair, if if the bondholders take it up. And I imagine you will see a lot of them holding out because there's not really a liquidity crisis at Diamond right now. And they probably also realize that Sinclair's got $2.5 billion of market cap and possibly the wherewithal to fix Diamond. And it is central to their company's strategy. So it's... Stay so that tuned. sounds a little bit more like a stalemate to me than something that's sort of so you, pretty good. So, no, you you keep collecting your coupon then, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, listen, I mean, I think it's, you know, if, again, I, I, I mean, I guess the, the concern is always that Sinclair just walks, right? Because technically they're not obligated there and they could just go away. But to your point, maybe that sort of leaves them in a sort of slightly different business structure than what they've envisioned. All right. So, so maybe last word to you, Nagisa. Uh, anything else sort of happening uh, in your landscape? Anything happening that's interesting that you see in terms of court cases coming down? Well, that's that's worth really highlighting uh, in terms of the landscape that we live in today. I think uh, Hertz is likely to even if it end up settling down the road. We hopefully we'll get to learn a bit more about treatment of maple and post-petition interest in the Third Circuit. Uh, moving forward, I think uh, given the deadlines, we may decide we may learn more about the airlines, and then we do have the uh, the confirmation hearing in uh, Washington Prime coming up at the end of the month. So, uh, sort of fairly compressed timeline, so we may be able to get some answers in all this discussed today. Well, hopefully not too many answers, because if everything comes out by the end of summer, then there's not going to be a heck of a lot to talk about, uh, given the absence of sort of new bankruptcies and, and situations that are sort of distressed. So uh, so I guess we'll see how things play out. But as always, uh, thank you both for, for all the insights. Uh, and to our listeners, thank you for once again joining us. Uh, we will certainly be back uh, next month in the month of September. Till then, everybody enjoy the remainder of your summer, and uh, you know we'll see you on the flip side. Thank you.